Well, behind me on the screen you can see a huge limestone rock. That is in North Somerset in England. That rock is called Burrington Coombe. I want to quote from this book, rather an old book now, Great Hymns and Their Stories, about an incident that occurred in that very spot. And that occurred there 260 years ago this year. The book says this, quote, In 1762, the Reverend Augustus Toplady was walking through Burrington Coombe, a beautiful spot some two or three miles from his home, when he was caught in a sudden storm. The particular place is very exposed, affording no shelter. But Top Lady espied a cleft running down a mass of rock beside the road in which he was able to take refuge until the storm abated. End quote. Now the word cleft, as it is used there, is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as being a natural opening or line, for example, in the ground or in a rock or in a person's chin. The word comes from Middle English. It's derived from the, from the German and the Dutch word kluft, K-L-U-F-T, meaning to split in two. Top lady hiding in that rock that day was similar to the experience, if you remember, from Exodus 33, where God passed by Moses and hid him in the cleft of the rock. Now, as Top Lady hid in that cleft of the rock, he realised that when God formed that rock, he deliberately included that cleft there in the physical rock, thereby forming a space where Top Lady would be able to shelter from a physical storm that day. But Top Lady was not just sheltering from a storm. He was also a Christian pastor and he obviously had a very good mind because he perceived a parallel in the same way that God put that cleft in that physical rock allowing him to shelter from the storm that particular day. So too Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, had been cleft, in, or in that sense, killed. Jesus' death and resurrection provided a place where repentant sinners would likewise be sheltered from God's wrath for sin. While Top Lady sheltered there, he saw at his feet a playing card, which he then picked up. And on the back of that card, he wrote the first two lines of what is now a very famous English hymn. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Now he chose that particular photo because you can see the two ladies standing there. It gives you an idea of the scale of that rock face. And this is the exact spot. Now that is formed that that gave the occasion for the two first two lines of that hymn. Now I'll come back to the rest of that particular first verse of the hymn later on in the sermon. But there is a sign at that spot which tells the hymn's story, right? 
And you can see it there. Let me read it. It says, This rock derives its name from the well-known hymn written about 1762 by the Reverend A.M. Toplady, who was inspired while sheltering in this cleft during a storm. And that is here on the rock. Now this morning we have gathered together to celebrate the infant dedication of our grandson, Lewis. Nathan asked me today to preach on Psalm 91. And that entire psalm evokes images very like the one, the experience of Augustus Toplady on that day in 1762. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Psalm 91. Now, I've got three purposes for us this morning. First of all, if you are a child of God, but if current circumstances make you feel like you've been through the ringer, to use an Australian colloquial expression, this psalm is for you. And my prayer is that by studying Psalm 91, you will shift your focus from your troubles and put them back on Jesus. Jesus, the rock of ages, the one who shelters us in the midst of life's storms. Secondly, if you are not a Christian this morning, my prayer for you is that you will be drawn to Jesus and find him as the rock of ages and choose to hide yourself in him. And my third and final purpose concerns Nathan and Beck. And Lewis. And I will remember just after Nathan was born that Rosemary and I dedicated him to the Lord. Now at that stage, of course, we had no idea what the future would hold for him or for us. We had no idea how long God would preserve him. And we prayed for God to prepare, to prepare a godly wife for him. Which God has certainly answered. And we are so grateful for Beck. Now whilst none of us knows the future for either ourselves or for our children, it is nonetheless wonderful to witness godly parents committing themselves to raising children God's way. Today it's not so much about Nathan and Beck dedicating Lewis to the Lord, although that's certainly part of it. But the bigger aspect is that they are dedicating themselves to raising Lewis according to God's word. Psalm 91 gives us a huge encouragement in this area also. I've entitled this psalm, Dwelling in the Shelter of the Most High. But I think something's happened on the PowerPoint. It's muck things up a little bit we'll just go with it it's all good but the 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 title is dwelling in the shelter of the most high now if you look there at your bibles you'll see there that psalm 91 has no author assigned to it the previous psalm psalm 90 was penned by moses you can see that there And according to Spurgeon, the Jewish understanding was that if no name was assigned to a particular psalm, then the last named author would have written it. So it is possible that Moses wrote Psalm 91 as well. Now we've already read Psalm 91, which is great. 
This morning, as we study it, we're going to have two main points plus a conclusion. So let's have a look. Point number one this morning, the Lord's protection for the godly. The Lord's protection for the godly. And this will take us from verses 1 to 13. We're going to do this under three subheadings. The first subheading, the state of the godly. Look there at verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now as we read those two verses, do not assume that the peace and serenity there are due to an absence of trials. Rather, the psalmist has learned to experience peace and serenity in the midst of trials, even as those trials rage around him. In 1840, Charles Bradley wrote this, quote, It is a security in the very midst of evils. Not like the security of angels, safety in a world of safety, quiet in a calm, but it is quiet in a storm, safety and desolation and the elements of destruction, deliverance where everything else is going to wreck. Augustus Toplady hiding in the cleft of that rock, experienced this peace in the midst of a storm. Now it's a tragedy that so many Christians never experience this peace of God. Psalm 91 is addressed to every Christian, those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Now, in these verses, we find the reason for the psalmist's confidence. And the fact is, he knows God. He doesn't just know about God in some theoretical sense. Instead, he has experienced God. And the psalm brings that out very clearly. And it's precisely because God has delivered him from pestilence and plague that he's able to confidently state these truths. He has lived these truths. Now, there's a few things to note here. If you look there at verse 2, you'll see it's the only verse in the psalm where the psalmist speaks in the first person. Every other verse is about him about what happens to him. But look there at verse 2. It says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So that statement becomes the foundation. Every other verse occurs as a result of the commitment made there or stated in verse 2. The second thing to note there in, verse, in these verses are four names of God. We have the Most High, we have the Almighty, we have Lord, and if you've got the ESV it's all in capitals, and the word God. 
Right? Now we're going to examine these, but we'll do this later on in the sermon. We'll come back to them when we get to verse 14. Alright, so that's the first sub-point. Second sub-point, dangers experienced by the godly. And this will take us from verses 3 to 6. In these verses we find five dangers that assail a godly person. The first one is in verse 3, the snare of the fowler. It says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. A fowler is a hunter of wild birds. And the snare would be a trap that uses a noose to catch hold of the leg of the bird. In a similar way, godly men and women are assailed by those who desire to bring them down spiritually. And verse 3 tells us that God will deliver the godly from such attacks. Secondly, we have deadly pestilence. Look at verse 3 again. He says, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Look at verse 6. He talks about the pestilence that stalks in darkness as well. Spurgeon tells us that there is a pestilence of error, but God will keep us safe from that if we dwell in his word. There is also a pestilence of sin. But again, if we abide in close communion with God, we shall be safe. This is what Steve was saying about reading your Bible each day. That helps enormously. And And there will be times of pestilences of disease. But God is able to keep us safe from them too. Sometimes God keeps us safe from pestilence via a vaccine. Thirdly, we have terrors of the night. Look at verse 5. We'll skip verse 4 for the moment. Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that that flies by day. Now, many people are terrified in the night. They fear that someone may break into their home, or they may be terrified of ghosts. A lot of kids are scared of the dark, so parents install a nightlight as security. Parents, if your children are afraid of the dark, teach them the security of trusting God and his word. Read them Psalm 91 verse 5 and show them that that if they trust God, they don't need to fear the terrors of the night. You can use their fear to teach them gospel truth. You might even choose to write Psalm 91 verse 5 onto the nightlight to remind them that God watches over his godly ones in the night. (coughs) Also in verse 5 we have the arrows that fly by day. So in addition to the night terrors are arrows shot at the godly during the day. However, God promises that his godly ones need not fear such attacks either. The fifth one is the destruction that wastes at noonday. Look at verse 6. He says, Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now, in a very negative sense, David experienced this kind of wasting disease when he failed to confess his sin. You needn't turn there, but Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5 says this. 
David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Failure to confess sin can bring a wasting disease. But as David said in Psalm 32, confession brings restoration. And this protection comes from the Lord. Now the word fear fear there that you see in verse 5 applies equally to each of those four dangers. Terror of the night, arrows that fly by day, Pestilence that stalks in darkness and destruction that wastes at noonday. God protects his people and the result is that they do not fear these things. So answer me this question this morning. What do you fear? What do you fear? Many people fear the COVID-19 virus. For some, that fear drives them to get a vaccine in the hope that it will protect them. For others, fear of the virus drives them not to get the vaccine. But here, the psalmist has no fear. So the question is, how is he able to live without fear? Well, this brings us back to verse 4. This is point number six, God, or sub-point number six, God protects his people. Look at verse four. Verse four says, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. The word pinions there refers to the outer part of a bird's wing, including the flight feathers. And this is just a beautiful picture. Just as a hen covers her chicks with a protective wing, so too the Lord protects his godly ones. Under his wings you will find refuge, it says. But there's a second picture there in verse 4 as well. It says his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Well, most of us know what a shield is. A shield is used to ward off attack. But what is a buckler? A buckler is defined as a small, round shield, often worn on the forearm. Presumably the man would have a shield on one hand, a big shield, and a buckler on the other arm. So both the shield and the buckler are defensive equipment rather than offensive equipment. So the implication here is that God will protect his people. And it is God's promise of protection that means the psalmist has no fear of these dangers. So bringing this up to today, whether you are vaccinated or not against the COVID-19 virus or whatever it is that's currently around, you cannot claim this psalm as your defence if you are living in fear. You can only claim this psalm as your defence if, due to your trust in God, you are not living in fear. Do you see the difference? The result of the psalmist's confidence was freedom from fear. 
And he desires that all God's people likewise live free of fear because of their confidence in God. Third sub-point, the example of the godly. Look at verses 7 to 8. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Now we look at that and we think that's good news. That would be a terrifying experience. Imagine being in a town where a plague has ravaged everyone else except you. If you were in that situation, you would hear the screams of the dying. You would smell the stench of death. You would see putrefying wounds. The blood of those affected may even smear your clothes and your hands. Almost undoubtedly you would have nightmares and you would probably wake up in a cold sweat from time to time. That's where this verse becomes really clear for us because it says you will experience all of this It will affect you, but it says it will not harm you. And it's important that we understand the difference. Let me give you an illustration. In Warsaw, during World War II, a Jewish pianist by the name of Vladislav Spielman, and my apologies if I've totally mispronounced his Polish name, he experienced conditions very like these. The account of his war years was written and published in 1946 in Polish and it recounts his harrowing experience. The book is called The Pianist. After after the fall of communist in 1991, the book was then translated into English and it was made into a movie in 2002. Some of you may have seen the movie or read the book. The book details many occasions where God protected that one Jewish man even while everyone around him was killed. One day he and his family, along with thousands of other Jews, had been rounded up waiting to board the train to to, to, Treblinka when he was recognised by a Jewish-Polish officer and physically pulled out of the line and hidden. Everyone else, including all members of his family, boarded the train and were killed. But God spared him. I wonder if Spielman ever read Psalm 91, verses 7 and 8. God likewise protected his people when they were in Egypt. You remember, most of you would remember the plagues that God brought on Egypt. And in the ninth plague recorded in Exodus 10 verses 21 to 23, God caused darkness to fall on Egypt. And it says it was a darkness that could be felt. But the incredible thing was that it was not in the land of Goshen where God's people were. How did God do that? How could it be pitch dark all over Egypt, as I said, a darkness that could be felt, And yet in Goshen, there was light. What happened if an Israelite stepped out of Goshen? Could you stand there and poke your head into the darkness and pull it back again? The Bible doesn't tell us. But God is able to do that. 
Those miracles demonstrate God's ability to bring disaster right up to his people, but it not touch them. God is perfectly able to protect his godly one, even though 10,000 may succumb to a deadly plague and die all around him. Another incident that just comes to my mind now. You remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in, in, the, in the, the furnace, right? And the, fl- and, and the ropes that they'd tied them up and thrown them into the furnace, the flames burnt the ropes but didn't singe the skin. How did God do that? How can you be tied up tight in a rope and the rope burns and it doesn't touch your skin? Only God can do that. But God is able to do that. Look at verses 9 and 10. The psalmist says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. I've referenced Spurgeon a couple of times. Spurgeon was a... uh, Baptist pastor in England in the 1850s up until 1890 and he records the following event which ties in really well with these verses he says this quote in the year 1854 when I had scarcely been in London 12 months the neighborhood in which I labored was visited by Asiatic cholera and my congregation suffered from its inroads Family after family summoned me to the bedside of the smitten, and almost every day I was called to visit the grave. I gave myself up with youthful zeal to the visitation of the sick, and was sent sent for from all corners of the district by persons of all ranks and religions. I became weary in body and sick at heart, My friends seemed to be falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low among the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. As God would have it, I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when my curiosity led me to read a paper which was pasted up in a shoemaker window in the Dover Road. It did not look like a trade announcement, nor was it, for it bore in good bold handwriting these words, Because thou hast made the Lord which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Spurgeon continues, the effect upon my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil, and I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesman to place those verses in his window, I gratefully acknowledge, and in the remembrance of its marvellous power, I adore the Lord my God. End quote. Okay, all of that was point number one. Point number one was God's protection for the godly. 
Now let's have, move on to point number two. The Lord's pledge to the godly. All right, so point number one, God's protection for the godly. Point number two, the Lord's pledge to the godly. And this, is, this will take us to the end of the psalm. Now in verses 14 to 16, God then speaks himself. Look at verses 14 to 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now again, we'll have a number of sub-points here. The first one, deliverance and protection. Look, Look at verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. There are two reasons given there why God will protect his godly one. He holds fast to me in love, number one, and number two, because he knows my name. Jesus himself said in John 14 verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the godly one will desire to obey God's commandments. That's what it means to hold fast to him in love. But God also says that the godly one knows my name. Now that may sound really odd. Well, of course we know his name. His name is God. No, that's not what the point is at all. In Hebrew, a person's name also reveals his or her character. And this is never more true than when we consider God's various names. All right? Go back to verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So in those two verses we find four different names of God. Now many Christians desire to live their faith, sorry, many Christians live their life without really desiring to understand who God is. But in verse 1, he is called the Most High and the Almighty. In verse 2, he is called the Lord, and as I said, that's all in capitals. And he's also called God. And each of those four names reveals different aspects of God's character. Okay, let's have a look at each one in turn. First of all, the most high is the Hebrew word Elion. And it tells us that God is to be, to be lifted up or elevated. He is the high and exalted one. And this name is especially found in poetry. That's the first one, the most high. The word almighty or the name almighty is the Hebrew El Shaddai. And it points to God as possessing all power in heaven and on earth. Now, while this stresses the greatness of God, it does not represent him as an object of terror, but as a source of blessing and comfort. The third name, the Lord, all in capitals, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And this name reveals him as the eternal covenant-keeping God of grace. 
And lastly, the, the name God in verse 2 is the name Elohim, which indicates a fullness of power, a person to be respected and feared. So even those four names give us an incredible picture of who God is. He is to be lifted up. He is powerful, yet he is gracious. He is unchanging in his character, and he is the one that we ought to fear. The trouble is most Christians do not study God's names, and so by default they manufacture a God, with a small g, a God of their own design. That, by definition, is idolatry. On the other hand, a biblically informed understanding of God allows the believer to enter into the kind of worship that the psalmist espouses. Now tell me, as we read verses 1 and 2, did you wish you had that confidence that the psalmist had? You can come to know God the way this psalmist obviously knew him. And that's why this issue of understanding God so, is so incredibly crucial. If you get this bit wrong, the assurance that the psalmist displays in Psalm 91 will elude you. It is only those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High who then, dwell in, who, who then abide in the shadow of the Almighty. No one else ever has, and no one else ever will. And God says in verse 13, I will protect him because he knows my name. When you know God, then you are able to rest, even in the midst of calamity. So the first sub-point, God promises his godly one deliverance and protection. Secondly, God promises support and rescue. Look at verse 15. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honour him. Now, if you doubt God's willingness to answer you when you are in distress, remember these verses, okay? Look there as I read those verses, verses 14 to 16. Let me emphasize what God says. Look at verse 14. He says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honour him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God does all these things because that believer trusts in him. God states his desire to save, but also to answer prayer. God says, when he calls, I will answer him. God always answers prayer. The problem for many of us is that we always expect a yes as the answer. 
But of course the word no is also an answer or even wait is an answer as well. And we need to trust God's goodness when he answers our prayers. God also promises to be with the godly in trouble and to rescue him. The most surprising part for me is at the end of verse 15, where God also promises to honour him. That seems odd. Surely God ought to be honoured by us. He deserves the honour, not us. Right? Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. But this psalm tells us he not only sent his beloved son to die the death that we deserve. I mean, obviously that's not here in this psalm, but that's the truth. He not only pulls us out of the mire of sin in which we are born, he not only gives us new life, eternal life, but he honours us as well. That is astonishing. Such is the manifold love of God for sinners. Finally, verse 16, the third subpoint: long life and salvation. God promises long life and salvation. Look at verse 16. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now the emphasis there is not so much on the long life as it is on the satisfaction or being satisfied in God. The man described in this psalm fills out the measure of his days And whether he dies young or old, he is quite satisfied with life and is content to leave it. He shall rise from life's banquet as a man who has had enough and would not have more even if he could. Not only does God promise to be with us in trials, but he gives satisfaction in life. There are many elderly people who live with regret either for sins that they have committed or things that they didn't accomplish in life. But that is not to be the case for the Christian. Why? Because God has shown grace. And God has taken away the sin and the guilt. All of which then brings us to the conclusion this morning. Point number three, the conclusion. Psalm 91 paints a picture of a believer able to rest in God. He has a calm assurance that all is well. And this brings me back to Augustus' top lady and the hymn that we looked at at the beginning. Let me read the whole thing. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not like Steve. I'll just read it. Verse 1. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Verse 2. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Verse 3. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. 
Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. Do you see the desperation? Verse 4, while I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Now if you have personally not come to know Jesus as your saviour, then unlike Augustus, top lady that day, You have nowhere to hide. When God's wrath for sin strikes, you will be swept away. The good news is that Jesus still offers salvation. Now, earlier on I explained the first two lines of Top Lady's hymn. I'm not going to do all four verses, but let me just concentrate on the first verse. And let's have a look at the rest of the verse. When Jesus died on the cross, a soldier by his side pierced his side with a spear. And John 19 verse 34 tells us that when that happened, blood and water flowed out. Now we now in our medical um, expertise now know, and obviously the Romans already understood this, that when blood and water separate, that only happens at death. So Top Lady referred to that event in the first verse. He says, Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. When we take Jesus as saviour, his death on the cross does two things immediately for us. First of all, it frees us from sin's guilt That's the sin of the past. But it also frees us from sin's power. The past sins are washed away. But God also gives new believers the the right to be able to choose not to sin in the future. Imagine being free from the guilt of past sins and failure and being then able to learn to say no to those sins. That's what Jesus offers every Christian. That's what Jesus offers every non-Christian. Sure, your friends might laugh at you, and you need to seriously weigh up the cost of the, with the benefits of choosing Christ. But when the day of judgment comes, and it will come, Only those who have chosen to hide in Christ will survive. And God will welcome them into eternal glory. That's the gospel message. That's who Jesus is as the rock of ages. And just as Augustus' top lady hid himself in the cleft of that rock that day and survived the storm so too Jesus offers every person forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of sin. That's what that hymn is about. That's why when we sing that hymn, and 
we're not singing it today, that's my fault rather than <laughs> the guys here. It would be great to finish off with that hymn, but that's fine, we're not doing that, so that's okay. But when we do sing it, that's why we sing so lustily, whether we can sing well or not. Because Jesus is the rock of ages and we can hide ourselves in him. My prayer for every one of us, including Lewis as he grows, is that we all learn to dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. If you would like to come and speak to me afterwards, I'd be loved to speak to you or to Steve. Come and speak to us afterwards. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for both this psalm and the hymn that came from it. Father, we do thank you that you are the one who covers us with your pinions, protects us. Father, I pray that all of us would come to the point of knowing who you are and being able to live our life even in the midst of terrors without fear, knowing that you are looking after us. We thank you for the truths of this psalm. And Lord, I pray that it would, it would be true for all of us, that every one of us would hide ourselves in him. We thank you for the offer of salvation which still exists. In Jesus' name.